This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Scenario construction. Maps as secrets. Prepping Cthulhu. And my raid on Powell's City of Books. Pieces of Eight from our freebooting pals at Atlas Games is a pirate ship combat game played with coins. Minted metal coins that clink in your hand. And that's it. No board, no dice, no meeples, no colored cubes. Just coins made out of metal. To play Pieces of Eight, you hold a stack of pirate coins in your hand. That's your ship. And you hold one coin in your other hand. That's your crow's nest. Coins represent things like cutlasses, mates, barrels of grog, and the captain's monkey. Each coin has a special ability you use to attack your enemies. Your enemies being other scurvy players and their own filthy coins. When coins get blown to kingdom come, they go to the Davy Jones locker of your pants pocket. The last player with a surviving captain coin wins. One of the cool things about Pieces of Eight is that you don't need a table to play. Because of all the coins are either in your hand or in your pocket. So it's great for car trips. Or standing in line. Also a great pub game. Because if you're doing the pub right... All the little pub tables are already busy holding your pub drinks up off the pub ground. The no-table gimmick is clever, but Pieces of Eight is also a great game. For example, it won the Origins Awards Vanguard Award for Innovation in Game Design, and it was a nominee for the crazy prestigious Diana Jones Award. Designed by the worthy yet modest Jeff Tidball, who wrote this ad copy but was too shy to credit himself. How tragically Minnesotan of him. Yes, I guess we'll never know who designed this brilliant, groundbreaking game. But we do know that Atlas Games is running a limited-time clearance of Pieces of Eight coin sets right now. Each set contains enough coins for four players, and the limited-time price includes shipping and handling. Let's recap. Pieces of Eight is a pirate ship combat game played with minted metal coins. You don't need a table, so it's great for long lines, car trips, and pub gaming. It's an award-winning design for expert-certified great gaming. And right now, you can get a four-player Pieces of Eight package at a limited-time drop-everything price. Shipping and handling included. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-po8. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-the-letter-p-the-letter-o and the number 8. Or follow the link in the show notes. That might be best. <laughs> The clatter of dice, the rustle of graph paper, the desperate search for the top of the pen tell us we have entered the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, as the graph paper implies, there is scenario construction afoot. Perhaps it's a gaming hut inhabited only by the GM. Perhaps the players are sitting and talking amongst themselves about hockey. Who can say? Robin, you can say. So this is a, a, a pre-game riffing hut, as it were. And I don't know how much graph paper is going to figure into this, because I thought what I would do is uh, I have a few just sort of this kernel seed of an idea for a horror scenario. This is a fear itself scenario. Uh, if you don't know that game, this is the simplest of the gumshoe horror games. It's the one in which you play ordinary people stumbling into horror movie situations so that we don't have to explain a lot of background of uh, the Esoterrace or the Cthulhu Mythos or whatever. Um, and so we're g I'm going to hit Ken with this idea, and then we're going to flesh this out 
into what this uh, adventure might look like. So the idea, uh, Ken, here is it came from sort of seeing something out on the street in my city. This follows the basic horror premise that it is a strong choice to select ordinary, relatable, day-to-day things in real life and then add a level of horror to them so that you're grounding the horror in something real. And in this instance, it was a big tower of crates uh, from a produce store. There's an area in the back of the, the store, sort of on the side street, and they just sort of stack all of the crates. And then when garbage day uh, rolls around, commercial garbage day, they pile them out on the street. But here there was this huge tower of crates, and one of the uh, people who worked at the produce store was sort of in behind them, kind of masked from view of the street, uh, rustling around in them and uh, moving them around. And then this is just a couple of doors down from like a low-rise apartment building. It's like a, one of the older, maybe uh, 30s, 40s era uh, low-rise apartment buildings that you see in residential neighborhoods in Toronto. And that got me thinking of an idea of the crate man. And so this, uh, this is my first thing, the phrase, the crate man. He somehow, instead of just the ordinary figure of a person who works at a produce market, this becomes <laughs> the terrifying figure of something that you sometimes glimpse out of the corner of your eye. And there's something uh, sinister. And of course, because it's a horror story, it become increasingly sinister about this figure. And then the next idea I had would be to tie it into the apartment building and the people living in the apartment building, and that somehow the crate man would begin to interact with all of them. And these would be the player characters who live in the apartment building and have to come together and somehow confront whatever it is that the crate man is doing. And my final sort of uh, visual image for this is that the things he could start to do were just leave little bits of garbage in front of their apartment doors, uh, regardless, of course, of whatever level of security the apartment building has. So you might open the door one morning and there would be, you know, just some chicken bones from the KFC a few doors down on Bloor Street. And then after that, of course, we will figure out how that escalates. And my final idea was, since this is a fear itself adventure, your uh, characters normally specify the worst thing they ever did. But for the purposes of this adventure, they will explain why you can't just leave the apartment building. Why you're, why you're stuck in the apartment. Yeah, and this will be part of your character creation is what ties you to the apartment building and requires you to continue to deal with the crate man. And so, uh, Ken, I thought I would throw all of these ideas to you and uh, let you uh, start shaping those into uh, an adventure that we might theoretically uh, publish. But of course we're not because we're doing this segment about it instead. Right. Okay. I think the first thing that is something about the crate man, you have to decide what are the visual cues that let you know you're seeing the crate man. And you don't know them necessarily immediately because like you say, you can start with, I thought I saw someone out of the corner of my eyes and isn't there a guy over there by the crates? I don't see anything, etc. But eventually there has to be some, indication of crate manosity in figures that you see that are not around the crates. And I think crate man can be wearing like a, a uniform of the, of the produce market guys, but his uniform is maybe a little bit older. It's the uniform from the produce market as it was back in the fifties or something like that. Or his, his hat is, is discolored in, in some way that it's, you know, an older different hat. Maybe it's got, you know, the logo of, of some dead food company on it, uh, or it's got, um, uh, you know, it, it's the logo for something that isn't there anymore. And so once you start 
having the ability to identify strangers as maybe the crate man, but maybe they're just wearing a tan jacket, then I think that the the possibilities expand and you can start, you know, you have the buzz and you look through the little uh, porthole in your, in the little peephole in your, in your door and you see the logo for that food company and you're like, oh my God, it's a crate man's outside my house. But even though you've never shown anyone anything scarier than the logo for a defunct Toronto chicken wholesaler. And so... That is, I think, what you need. So you need some stigmata. You need some spore. I, the garbage is a great idea. I think the notion that, you know, they go down in the elevator and they, and they open the elevator and there's one of those crates is just sort of sitting there, you know, kind of canted on its side. It, it's obviously not been left there by whoever might leave a crate there, but it's, it's a threateningly positioned crate. I think the crates as microcosm of the apartment building was where I thought you were going to go with that, that the crates are all piled up. That So they're like the individual apartments all piled up and there's rustling rats around in it. And those are kind of like the people. And I thought that there would be a connection there. So that might be a connection that you want to either emphasize or offer up as a red herring. Um, I think uh, rats are always a good thing whenever there's uh, food refuse that they can be maybe the crate man's servitors or his followers. Or he's that's how he, you know, kills someone's um, uh, or threatens someone's child or, or something like that. One of the things that keeps them. That's a way to have the crate man attack you without having to actually, you know, physically fight the crate man early on in the adventure. So I think that right, you and you can have a, a wave of different vermin attacks because of course there's mm -hmm. all sorts of different things that are going to be in food refuse, and that mm -hmm. also starts to suggest sort of our um, metaphor that ties all of the horror together because you don't want just a series of random weird events. Uh, this implies something that we're going to be saying or exploring and what we're talking about is the uh you know the impact of living cheek by jowl and not necessarily knowing each other and being dependent on others for our sustenance in a way that we sort of hide away and is sort of an eyesore that we edit out of our existence and the the sort of the idea then becomes the you know the horror of unintended sources. You don't know where your food is coming from. You don't know who your neighbors are. And that by starting to acquire knowledge, which after all is the watchword of gumshoe, you can somehow start to piece together uh, what it is that's going on and find a way to kind of combat it or exercise it or to make him go cicada-like away for another generation. So he doesn't, uh, you know, maybe he'll bother your... Uh, uh, grandsons when they live in this place, but he's not going to bother you. So we've got this idea of, uh, of the crate man who starts to uh, bother you. He sends, uh, first of, he can send waves of attacks against you as it starts to escalate. Are there, uh, other things that we want to do in the sort of escalation scenes before we get to the rat attacks or the uh, cockroaches or opening your fridge and it, all the food is full of maggots? In between those escalations, I think that the thing to do first is to sort of draw people's attention to Crate Man and to emphasize that, you know, conventional ways of seeing Crate Man don't work. You know, if, they, if someone says, well, I'm just going to set up my, my, my phone in the window pointing at that pile of crates and I'm going to just have it take a picture every 30 seconds or whatever and I'm going to see the Crate Man show up and we're going to be able to follow him, you know, maybe... The, one of the 30-second pictures shows the crate man standing there, and none of the other pictures show him at all, right? That he just sort of flickers into existence at that point, so that you have an indication of his supernaturalism before you start to see those attacks. I think another thing that you need to start doing is maybe laying whatever the hint of why the crate man is so ticked off at that apartment building. You need to sort of provide some 
element of that mystery, and we haven't figured out if uh, the crate man was um, uh, waylaid and killed by you know urban cannibals who lived there in in the fifties, and that's why he is still monkeying around with people's food, or if the crate man was allowed to starve by the uh, nasty rich people when it was a nice building full of rich people. And so he was, you know, dying of, of malnutrition while he was carrying food back and forth. And, um, uh, someone, you know, maybe someone from the building saw him try and steal food from the thing and they ratted him out. And that's why he had to, you know, be sent to the, to live in the poor people house on the bad side of Toronto where he died. And maybe they have to go out to that old poor people house, which is an eerie replica now of their kind of crummy seedy apartment building. And so the rooms all have the same layout. And so it's like, did we enter a, a sort of a haunted world now that everything's got these same layouts, that these crates are somehow mapping the universe? But you need to have some part of the mystery of Crate Man, his, his origin story, that will let them, you know, get to the, to the point where they can have the confrontation with Crate Man at a point that is meaningful to the story and meaningful to the history of, of what's going on. I'd be tempted to go for uh, pursuing this sort of idea of territorialism and, and living too close together and you you don't know how dependent you are on the people around you. That the thing that Crate Man just sort of exists, he's just a regular standard ghost, but he needs his crates in order to anchor him to this reality that he wants. And so someone in the apartment building uh, has decided that they are going to raise a complaint against the people in the produce store it's basically, you know, a, a gentrification thing. It's it's an eyesore to have these crates, and there's uh, one of these little neighborhood or building protests that they then want to go and screw with the people who are uh, operating this uh, this business, and therefore they're uh, screwing with the crate man. They're threatening actually to push him out. And so the instigating incident that explains why we haven't had crate man hauntings until now is that there's this movement underfoot to... Uh, get rid of the crates. And so you could sort of set that up in the initial adventure. You could have uh, your first non-player character who gets uh, killed as the um, man or woman who is leading the charge against there being this pile of crates out there. And the players can, first of all, throw in on one side or the other with whether they're uh, unnerved by these crates. You can give them all sorts of reasons to hate the crates from, you know, oh, they nearly fell over on your toddler to uh, you saw, you know, a rat scurried out of them. And then that then gives you your, uh, you know, sort of he's the, the Freddy Krueger of gentrification that the, the crate man is. Mm -hmm. I, I think that you'd want to be a little careful about tying him to his crates specifically early because crates sound like the kind of things you can take care of with gasoline and an axe. Right. And that that could short-circuit your adventure too early. I think the crates are his manifestation, and maybe that's something that you do. We're going to go out and we're going to burn down these damn crates, and we figured out that the crates are somehow what he depends on, and when you burn them up with the axe and the gasoline, you're like, well, that's a good day's done with the, of the crates, man, and you go and you open the door of one of their apartments, and they're, they're, it's full of crates all of a sudden, that the crates have an ability to be recreated by the crate man that he... You know, he isn't. That, those aren't his focus because that would be way too vulnerable. Uh, it, to it turns out that he he still needs to. He just prefers that spot. He would prefer to have been left alone and never noticed mm -hmm. and never bothered. He would have been fine. But once it's really once you burn the crates, that's when that's when you're really screwed because now screwed. he's moving into your house. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, that's strong. And uh, and so that then gives you the, you know, you have to discover who he was and learn his past history as he's continuing to expand and do things that uh, drive you crazy. And because he's, uh, and once he's had his, 
his rats or his maggots or his crates in your apartment building, he can then follow you wherever you go. So, you know, you can, you're stuck in the apartment building, but maybe you decide, you know, you want to work late uh, that night and sort of not deal with the crate man. Well, then he shows up in your elevator and your elevator at work is full of crates and he Mm -hmm. starts to sort of slowly destroy everybody's lives. And so then the, the rest of the structure of the adventure is just the trail of clues that then once you have made things, uh, you know, you've provoked him. He's he's killed off the woman who uh, who started the whole campaign, and he's starting to kill off other people, sort of quasi randomly in the apartment building because he's a crazy ghost. He's not necessarily uh, targeting people. Uh, and then you have to figure out how to contact him and how to uh, somehow placate him and come to terms with him, even though that contacting him uh, drives you crazy and puts you in some sort of a state of risk. So do you see? Uh, a way to give this a third act, a way to have it be uh, climactic rather than just uh, summoning him and making a deal with him, which is a, a bit of an anticlimax. I think that the third act has to be that the crate man, having now moved into their house, is moving literally into one of the people. That you pick whichever of the people, either whichever of the people was the loudest against the crates or whichever of the people was the loudest for the crates, and you pick one of them, and they open their closet, and they've got his jacket hanging there and they have his hat on their head and they look at their hands and their hands aren't, you know, the nice soft hands of a Toronto, uh, you know, knowledge worker. They're the, the scummy, rough, oily hands of, of the, of the crate man. And that he is beginning to physically haunt the person. He's going to replace them and literally move into the apartment that is themselves. And, you know, they find that their, their food is, is no longer artisanal home to table food that was in their fridge. It's not necessarily the maggot food, but it's all old brands that no one would ever eat today. You know, Tab and um, uh, Swanson home dinners and, and all this the terrible really stuff people, people ate in the 50s, right? That he is now sort of going to move into your body and that that's the way that you have to, that's the threat that you have to deal with. It's not that he's going to, you know, ghost you to death and fill your mouth with cockroaches, although as awful as that is, he is going to actually physically move into your life and replace you and then... You're going to have to quit your job and not listen to progressive radio and, you know, and go down and, and carry crates back and forth for ghost money, not even for real money, because you're not actually alive. And uh, because he's not even alive, if you, uh, you know, you could diffuse that threat and have everybody, all of the player characters are all to various degrees, slowly turning into the crate man and have to find mm-hmm. a, a way uh, to confront that. Or, you know, one of the player who is character who is most the crate man then becomes a physical menace to the others and uh, they have to uh, kill at least one of the uh, PCs if not more in this big uh, final uh, conflagration or you know perhaps he's just seeking the ultimate revenge of turning the entire apartment building into a pile of crates and then torching it so that the final confrontation can occur with the entire apartment building ablaze which gives you that physical menace slash visual quality that gives you the big finish at the end that gives you your third act. But within that gives the players all sorts of freedom to shape the story in different ways so that, you know, you're pretty sure it's going to lead to that as your default big finish, but there's all sorts of ways to get there. I, I think that for, certainly for a fear itself adventure, one of the dangers would be in, in overlarding it and extending it too much. I mean, one of the great bits about Fear Itself is the notion that you're, you're able to run the one connected story and it goes to its end. So I think the, the only thing that we really need to do now is to maybe set up, you know, the possibilities of Crate Man 2, 
the, the, the sequel, the director video sequel, and do we have a crate man exit strategy after they've done whatever it is that, that gets him exorcised from their lives and, and, and have defeated the ghost of gentrification for this, for the time being? Well, the, the apartment building, uh, burns down. It seems that he's been destroyed. The physical body of the person that he possessed is, is of course, uh, destroyed. And so it seems that he has, uh, nothing more left to haunt. But because that building has burned down, now there's a new modern condo being proposed for the area. And oh, look, when it's been approved and there's a big construction area full of construction rubble. And um, if I have a number one fear about Toronto, it's the overdevelopment of the city and the rise of all these condos and my fear that I'm going to be priced out of my apartment <laughs> in my uh, cool sort of residential neighborhood. And so Condo Man is even more frightening to me than Crate Man could ever possibly be. <laughs> so um, Freddy's new nightmare, basically, is your uh, is your is your close out there. Exactly. Instead of uh, Condo Man will come up and he'll instead of possessing others, he'll be uh, purchased by Asian and investors and uh, let out as a rental unit or, or Russian oligarchs and not even lived in. Well, yes, exactly. That that is. Well, I, I'm I'm now switching to talking about Toronto real estate. So we better we better start. <laughs> real estate hut. Yeah. as fascinating as it is, is perhaps not the hut we should be staying around in. Indeed. This episode is also brought to you by World of Ataltus, the Temple of Modrin. An exciting new Pathfinder-compatible adventure that introduces players to the Ataltus setting. Kickstarting now! It's low prep and ready to play, complete with characters. World of Ataltus, a new fantasy setting, embraces and reinvigorates the familiar elements of fantasy games and fiction. Project creator Mark Tassin doesn't want you to trust in the awesomeness of a project he will one day complete. Far from it. Backers at any level score an immediate download of the full text, so you can see for yourself if it floats your Pathfinder-compatible boat. Temple of Modron serves as a mere first nibble of this exciting new world. Stretch goals bring it further to life with stories by luminary authors Larry Correa, David Farland, Matt Forbeck, Ed Greenwood, Dave Gross, John Helfers, Stephen S. Long, Mel Odom, Gene Rabe, Lucy A. Snyder, Michael A. Stackpole, and Elizabeth Vaughn, with a cover by fantasy illustration icon... Larry Elmore. Two additional Pathfinder-compatible sitebooks, the Greenbrier Tavern and the Town of Thornwall, are already in production. You know the Kickstarter drill, Ken and Robin listeners. The project and its tantalizing stretch goals only happen with your support. Strap on your crowdfunding swords, gather up your material components, and toss some gold coins at the creation of this fantastic new world. Before it's tragically too late. The latitude and longitude lines on the floor and the compass rose in the corner tell us that we have once more entered the cartography hut as a special tribute to our sponsors, Pro Fantasy Software, who purvey fine quality uh, mapping software, whether it's fantasy maps or science fiction maps. But uh, perhaps their product would be even more valuable in a past time when, uh, during the age of exploration, when maps uh, were... Uh, not just a way of telling us about the world, but were top-secret information that was uh, crucial as uh, different European nations wanted to lock down uh, different sources of uh, money and resources and treasure they found out all around the world. And their maps were as 
closely guarded a secret as anything. Ken, what sort of ideas for stories in gaming can we wring from the idea of maps as secrets? Well, I mean, we sort of brushed off that previously in the cartography hut when it was maps of secret places. But I think the actual physical map as secret, the reason you keep the map secret is because it shows you how to get someplace that you don't want other people to get. And that can be like the treasure map, where the X marks the spot, it can be the map to the Holy Grail or the Fountain of Youth. Right. Or, and and or in what? the historical example, the treasure is Brazil or... Right, yeah. Or the Indies. Or the, yeah. Uh, whichever Indies they happen to be. I, I think that one of the fun things that you can do, rather than make the uh, destination the thing you're keeping secret, it's the route is the thing that you're keeping secret, that... You know, the the map is not necessarily where is the Holy Grail, it's how do you get to the Holy Grail? What are the what are the steps on the way? The map becomes the way to deliver the, the you know, the seven parts of your adventurous rod. What is the route? And the notion of a map that gives you a secret road to somewhere, I think is even more pregnant once you move it out of the seventeenth century or the sixteenth century and into the modern era where there is, you know, Somewhere on, you know, Google Maps, if you know the secret override code, or maybe there's a, a map company um, that is, you know, got a, a dot, you know, LV uh, postscript because it's in Latvia or something, and you and you go on it, and this map shows you how to find the person who wants to kill you, right? Or this map shows you where your true love is, or this map shows you, you know, whatever, and you just type it into the, into the little uh, uh, bars, and boop, up comes the map, and it's like, this is the person... Uh, who you could kill and no one would know, right? And it's sort of the map as invitation into something bizarre or horrible. And part of the notion of this is the idea of, of the map as not just being a secret, but being a state secret. Mm -hmm. So that a big part of the adventure, or possibly, you know, one adventure in a series of linked adventures is the one in which you steal the map or get a copy of the map somehow. And that could be, you know, a literal map that you have to sneak into Langley or into a secure facility in Utah in order to extract, or it could be a, a decryption code. Uh, all you need is something that you can, you know, electronic thing that you copy to your proverbial thumb drive, and then you get it home and you uh, put it in your own computer, and now you can decrypt all of the levels of secret information in Google Maps that then give you all of those other maps you talked about, the ones that, uh, you know, reveal all of the secret information that the suspicionless surveillance is meant to gather and uh, all of the, you know, and in an occult version of that, it would, you know, have all the sites where all of the, uh, the danger is. The ley lines and stuff like that. Yeah. I think that uh, one of the other uh, fun things, uh, you know, as we talk about the maps being secret, the notion that in pirate times, right, you've, you know, you've, you've attacked the galleon, you've sacked it, you've got all the treasure in the hold. You'd leave the galleon there on the shore to rot. You get back to the pirate headquarters and you're, you know, drinking up all, all your treasure and you're having fun. And a guy from the British crown shows up and he says, Hey, pirate, guess what? We have you made. I've got my men here. We're going to hang you unless you can go back to where you left that galleon and find the map you left in the captain's quarters because that's actually the valuable thing. That's what the, the British crown wants. And so you have a adventure set up where you have to go back to the place that you thought you were done with. And of course, something worse is still there. The ghosts of all the guys you killed, or it's been occupied by um, uh, Chocho people, or whatever it is th that is inside a wrecked galleon, that you now have to work your way through that very dangerous environment uh, to get to 
the map as treasure, and the notion of the map as treasure as opposed to a treasure map is kind of a fun one. And the idea that the map is uh, valuable and, and highly valued uh, by a state security apparatus then gives you the premise of you are the guardians of the cartographers. If, for example, you have in your you know fantasy world or al- alternate world, you know your equivalent of Lewis and Clark, who are um, mapping a previously unknown hinterland so that you can tell the areas where the indigenous peoples are unspeakably hostile and you don't want to go versus the areas where there are nuggets of gold lying on the ground. And there are people who... Let's hope that those are different areas. Yes, let's hope they're different. You know, you could do the part of it where you're actually guarding the explorers while they're exploring, or you could do the part of the adventure where they're now, they've now reached civilization again. They've reached a port and it's your job to get them safely uh, across the ocean or down the coast or wherever it is to where the their mapping information, that's, you know, their rough notes or possibly even just in their heads that they're going to then add to the big map that's kept in the vault. You have to protect them from the other state power, the, the competing power that wants that map information. So then you have sort of a, uh, a bodyguarding run and... You know, inevitably, we know the way such adventures go that they will actually succeed, possibly in capturing the explorers or uh, getting a hold of their their notes. And then you have to do a rescue mission to get them back before the explorers are taken to the rival power and are forced to add their information to that map there. Right. I think maybe once you start talking about the maps as being repositories of knowledge, it's only a little bit away from talking about the maps as sentient creatures themselves that... They're the ones sending the explorers out, right? Oh, yeah, that's an obvious leap. Oh, well, duh. And so the, the maps are the ones sending the explorers out to bring back more data. It's, it's like the sort of, um, you could do it as it, Lewis and Clark area. You could do it back in the Portolan charts in medieval times. You can do it as a modern day, that that's what the surveillance state is actually about. It's about mapping everything that's going on to feed the sentient map that, that is there in Utah. Yes, the, the um, map is the power behind the throne that's, uh, that's driving everything. Yeah, and that, that the more data that gets added to the map, the more that it can control. And literally, the only freedom, the only place you can be free of this creature is to go off the map. I mean, off the grid, we say, but, you know, off the map. And so it's easier to do it back in, you know, 1500 when you can just go to, you know, Siberia or somewhere or the uh, Peru and it's not on the maps yet. Right. Or, or a science fiction setting where the world has not been fully explored. Mm-hmm. But now it's much harder to find a place that's not on the map. And maybe that's where you have to go, you know, to trap streets that an, an earlier almost sentient map that was built by the British Ordnance Survey or something back in the in the steampunk days, then they've got some islands that turn out not to exist on our maps, but if you sail to them, you can get there, because they've been kept off the map by some occult power, and that the notion of of the map as the surveillor and the map as the employer of these occult surveyors or these um, uh, secret uh, surveillance mappers is going to be uh, the, sort of the driving uh, uh, MacGuffin or the driving uh, image of the game, that it's all about maps that uh, that, that, that crave data and, and crave of uh, being filled up to the brim with dots and, and lines. And it, it may be that once something is on the map, that the, the sentient map then has the uh, has some sort of degree of uh, power over it that the mm-hmm. uh, that the thing and the signifier of the thing flip. And uh, if you can have a sentient map, then you can have a senile sentient map. And as it starts to uh, lose its uh, equivalent 
of uh, uh, neurons as it as it develops a map Alzheimer's, uh, it can start to create false memories of uh, what the map looks like. The map can start to rewrite itself on the wall, and therefore, in real life, you can start to see ghost images of this a new reality that the map is creating. And so you can find that the apartment building that you uh, live in is starting to phase in and out. And you then have to discover what's going on and get to Utah and uh, make a new copy of the map and destroy the old one. It may be that the new copy of the map is safely non-sentient, or it may just be that the new copy of the map uh, becomes the uh, son or daughter of the old map and becomes the map and you destroy the other map that is you know, slowly eroding and becoming unreliable. Or you could, you know, take that even further and the, you know, the map itself has been lost and forgotten. It actually does date back to the age of exploration and is, uh, you know, moldering somewhere in a library or museum that's under attack in, you know, Syria, for example, where there's all kinds of incredibly valuable medieval and and pre-medieval documents have been destroyed in the civil war there. Well, what if you know, the sentient map is there. And, uh, you know, every time there's another air raid, another hole gets knocked in the map and the map starts to lose integrity in the world. Therefore, it starts to lose integrity. And so the mission there is to go through the war zone to rescue the map and get it safely uh, to some other place where it can be uh, preserved or copied. Get it safely to Utah. <laughs> yeah, the, um, yeah the, your, your notion of the map going senile and erasing things, of course, is just the flip of sort of the map being evil and erasing things, that the map, as it starts to gain information, starts to want to alter the information in the same way that, you know, when the, the, the surveillance state you know, knows you and it, it's determined through your metadata that you're a, a bad person, it's going to send the, the, you know, the, the men in Mauve to, to grab you and take you off to secret Gitmo and, you know, get you off the unpleasant, uh, off the green and pleasant uh, land that they're, they're, they're in theory defending. You have the same thing with the map. It's like, oh, you're not as, uh, as aesthetic as, as putting a, a, a creek there would be. I'm going to put a creek in. And so I think it's even more fun if only the player characters recognize that things change because they've somehow, and that's the connection. And so you ask the players each to determine what is it about your character that no one else likes or that no one else approves of that. What is it that makes you, you know, unable to fit in, in the universe? Why are you a drifty hobo like uh, rust coal in the second half of true detective? What's wrong with you? And that that's the, the quality of not obeying lot latitude longitude, the un, uh, unsociability that forces, the, 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 in theory, the map will eventually erase you once it gets down to an individual person level. But right now, all it's going to do is just erase you, the street you live on or whatever. So there's all sorts of ways that you could uh, try to either protect, rescue, or find and destroy, or simply relocate all of these different uh, secret maps, some of them sentient and some of them not. So I think we've uh, created a map to a variety of different gaming ideas, and it's therefore time to find the route to our next segment. time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Tom Allman asks Ken and Robin, having switched from F-20 to Call of Cthulhu, 
What are the things I can have on hand to feel prepared for almost anything? Tom adds that he's running a Delta Greenish game set in 1927. Robin, do you have anything that he should have on hand besides maybe a copy of Call of Cthulhu? That would be helpful. Well, you're, you're never luckier than you are uh, now, uh, because now you have a uh, presumably a Wi-Fi connection where you're playing, and you have a device on which you can access Wikipedia, uh, because that's <laughs> something where you're uh, going to come up with questions in play that you're going to want to forestall one of those classic old-timey pre-internet arguments about a fact that nobody actually really knows. Mm -hmm. And so when the question comes up, you know, is there intercontinental air travel in 1927 or are there x-rays? You can just look those two things up. You can do it kind of discreetly. Or I think even one of the appeals of Call of Cthulhu is that it's in addition to a vehicle for horror, it's a vehicle for interesting little historical facts. And so I think most groups of gamers will be happy to have you sort of pop in and in your authorial voice say, well, x-rays actually date back to 1897 or whatever the actual date is. And, well, there's sort of uh, intercontinental air travel, but it's really rudimentary. And that applies specifically also to where uh, intelligence organizations are in, in 1927 that you can, you know, if you need to suddenly uh, determine, uh, you know, what agency would be taking an interest in Delta Greenish things and you, you know, presumably you have your Delta Green book or whatever, but there's a question there that you need to resolve. Your internet connection and uh, Wikipedia are is one of your number one things that you're going to be able to fall back on. Yeah, I think also you'll want, obviously, you know, Lovecraft. You'll, you'll want to have uh, the complete works of Lovecraft or at least the great works of Lovecraft handy or memorized or internalized. Um, you should have, in terms of gaming equipment, the... Chaosium is, is nice enough to have a whole book called the Malleus Monstrorum that is every single monster they've ever done, or at least had ever done at the time, which is more monsters than you will ever need, trust me. Um, you, you, uh, the, the Cthulhu core book has plenty of monsters, but this one will make you feel, as you say, prepared for almost anything, and it has a nice monster manually type heft to it in the sense of um, uh, giving you vastly more encounters than you ever could put into a single game. So I'm, I, I would I would recommend if you have a second book besides the core book, that might be the one that you want to uh, have on hand, especially if you began as a as as a and D style gamer. I think that in terms of uh, online resources, you should probably have a map, and you don't necessarily have to do this online. But it gets, as Robin points out, it's much easier to do it online. Have a map of Boston or a map of Chicago or a map of New York or wherever it is that your home city is that the campaign is sort of based out of. If it's Arkham, well, your problem is solved because Chaosium has a lovely Arkham book. But if it's uh, Providence, Rhode Island, that's just as short as a as a, a ding through the uh, various map archives online until you find Providence, Rhode Island right around 1927. You shouldn't have any great problem having that, and it provides a lot of advantages in play, both in terms of grounding yourself, saying, I know where everything is, I know where College Hill is, I know where all the the various the College Street, I know where Federal Hill is, I know where all the various bits of Lovecraft are, are, but also I know that there's likely to be a slum down there by the waterfront, I know that there's likely to be this and that and the other thing, and you can feel at home in the 20s the way that you would feel at home in Greyhawk or, or wherever it was that your fantasy world was. And again, you know, it's a matter of looking at what you needed to feel prepared or what you needed to feel at home when you were running your old game, and just translating that forward. So you've got a monster manual, you've got a city 
uh, map, you are, um, uh, yeah, as Robin points out, you have all of the source books ever in Wikipedia, and uh, you've got your rule set. I, I, uh, Robin, what else do you think, sort of over the horizon, do you think people are going to throw at him in his Delta Green game that he might want to uh, be ready for in terms of resources or just in terms of mental preparation? Well, one of the things really useful is to just be able to throw out little facts and details and color so that along with the um, map, the period map, I would seek out a, a period travel guide or a period uh, city book. And 27, I think, is early enough that they will be public domain and you'll probably be able to find facsimiles of them in electronic form on, on the net again. Uh, if you're going to exotic places, there's all sorts of uh, anywhere, for example, in that was a British colony, you can find a uh, re- British colonial report on it that gives you all the information or, uh, you know, you can look for, uh, and, and you're there, you're just looking for uh, a color as well. Uh, 27, of course, is during the, the film era. And so you might be able to, you know, type in uh, all sorts of variations of different years of, you know, Chicago, 1927, 26, whatever on YouTube. And you may be able to get archival footage. There may be a uh, the does the and I think the Library of Congress also has a video archive and even just having little sort of short clips of stuff shot at the time is something you you know you can just turn your tablet around and say okay well you're on this street here and certainly there's tons of photographic reference that you could go for but uh, just sort of images and stuff that create a sense of the the time. I think will uh, go a long way toward getting people in the, the mindset that you're going for, because one of the big things that differs between F20 and Cthulhu is the sense that a Cthulhu game is happening in our world in a specific time, and that it's something that you can ground a lot more uh, than in the sort of high fantasy that we expect from F20. In your talk about travel guides, I want to point up the Federal Writers Project American Guide Series. Now, this is better for Trail of Cthulhu than it is for Call of Cthulhu because they were done during the Depression, published usually in the late 30s, early 40s. But there is a what what they called American Guide Series, or but it's usually just something like, you know, whatever the state is. Nebraska, a guide to the Cornhusker State. But every one of the, of the states has, or the 48 states at the time, has a full-on travel guide written by writers who are employed by the, the federal government to keep them you know, from writing about how the federal government should actually be stopping the Depression, not wasting a lot of time building travel guides. And so they are really, really great sources for the 1930s for your, for your location. So the, less good for the 1920s for uh, the specific problem that uh, Tom has, but if you're playing Trail of Cthulhu and you're setting it anywhere in America, I recommend hunting down those uh, Federal Writers Project books because they are, they are they're good, they're comprehensive, they're better written than the average travel guide of the time, and they are uh, really, really cheap and easy to find. They've been reprinted a million times. I think they're all public domain because the government made them, and so therefore you can find them. I think they're probably digitized somewhere online, but you can find them for a nickel or, or not a lot of money in most used bookstores. You can dig around and find the Federal Writer's Guide to wherever you're looking for. And that's a really great resource. One thing you're going to need is to be able to draw on, as you improvise, period-sounding names. And the easy shortcut to that is to go to the Internet Movie Database, find films that were made in the, presumably in America, I guess, in this case, so that's easy enough to do, made in 1927. They're all silent films, of course, but for this purpose, that makes uh, no never mind. And uh, what I do is I take 
I mix and match the first and last names. So just in case uh, the names you're borrowing are names that somebody might find uh, familiar, or you know, if you want to publish stuff later, you don't want to be using the actual real name of a character actor from 1927 because somebody might notice it. But if you just mix and match the first and last names and print out a couple of pages of that, uh, obviously make sure you have uh, names of women as well as men because unlike Lovecraft, you may have several women in your, uh, in your scenario. <laughs> it's a shabnir. That pretty much takes care of all there of it. There you go. Um, and so that allows you to quickly uh, grab a name from the list that seems to match whatever it is. So if you suddenly find you, you need you know, the local sheriff who you didn't necessarily expect to be part of the adventure, but they went off and looked for the local sheriff, you can then go down your list of uh, pre-prepared names, go, okay, that looks like a sheriff name. Okay, he's uh, B.K. Hansen. And there's just something, even from decade to decade, obviously not so much with the last names, but even there, you know, they're just people who, you know, names from the, the 20s and 30s and 40s don't sound like the names that you run across today. And having the right names will... Uh, go a long way toward giving you that sort of period flavor, even if you sort of exaggerate that a bit by, you know, there's still lots of uh, Johns and Peters and uh, Michaels in both eras, although actually le less now than then. Uh, now we've got, you know, Cadens and Jordans and so forth. But if you, you know, pick the more outlandishly period sounding names, those will have, I think, a greater impact in making it feel like it's in period. I think another, especially for Lovecraft, that I tend to do is I go to uh, baseball teams, and especially like the Harvard baseball team or the Yale baseball team from the year. And I pick names from those baseball teams. Again, you can swap first and last. You can just pick names straight off and say, that is, you know, a good New England name. So you even have a more regional thing than going to a, to a database. And so if you are playing in a specific region and you're in the South, you might want to, instead of do the Harvard baseball team, you'd go and you'd find who's playing for the, you know, I don't know what they had, Shreveport Capitals or something. Right, because the players moved around a lot less then. Yeah. And, and yeah, there was a more localized thing. And and that will give you some, some maybe some regional names that uh, you might not get from, from Hollywood uh, script titles. Another thing you're going to maybe want if you're doing Delta Green, obviously, is a sense of what guns and what weapons are available and what they can do, which is also helpful. There is a great, 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 great book from 60 Stone Press called Investigator's Weapons, 1920s and 1930s, and it's by Hans Christian Vortisch. And if you are a GURPS fan, you are already throwing up your hands in delight because he has written the most incredibly useful GURPS books on the subject of gunplay and guns that are imaginable. And he is now expanding that remit to Call of Cthulhu. And so those of you who are fortunate enough to have uh, Hans Christian write a gun book for a topic you are interested in, um, it now includes uh, Cthulhu players in the 20s and 30s. Investigators, weapons, 1920s and 30s, there's lots of alternate gun rules you can use or not use, but there is literally a list of, I think, it, it may not be every firearm that you could possibly find in the 1920s and 30s, but if it's not, it's not for a lack of trying. And it's certainly every firearm your players are going to want to find in the 1920s and 30s. You combine that with maybe a, a couple of good gangster movies or, or something to uh, give you a sense of, of how the weapons might feel in action or, or how they might look in action. Um, you can find uh, the Internet Firearms Database, which is a terrific... Or is it Internet Movie Firearms Database? Right, yeah. What is it, Robin? Yeah. Uh, and, and that tells you what... If you're looking for a Tommy gun and you look up Thompson M1928 or M1918, depending on which one you want... Um, and it says, it'll list all the movies that that gun is used in. And you can pick, I want to watch that movie. And that will show you what the gun looks like in play. And you'll have more familiarity with it. So a, 
a 45 Colt 1911, the, the, the sensation of firing it and of having it fired are different than like a police snub nose, uh, 32 or 38. And so you can look at, at enough movies, you'll have a sense of how the guns feel in play. And if it's a good movie, a good enough movie, you may have a sense of, of tactics. And again, um, investigator weapons also has a section on where to see those guns, uh, uh in, in movies and whatnot. So get, get yourself to the drive through or wherever and get investigator weapons volume one by Hans Christian. And that'll, 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 that'll be your, your big book of weapons, which again, it's no glaive Jazarm Vulge, but it's pretty great. Uh, well, we don't want to over-prepare Tom, and we have a uh, mega segment uh, approaching on the horizon. <laughs> uh, so I think we can uh, determine that we have uh, answered that question and move on to that segment. And that segment uh, commemorates uh, the historical event that I think uh, will be known uh, forever afterwards as the Raid on Powell's. A while back, we did a travel advisory on Ken's trip to uh, Portland and uh, the Lovecraft Film Festival in Cthulhu, and he mentioned that he somehow managed to have 33 books come into his possession, which qualified him for free shipping. Well, the box has now arrived. And I'm going to now vicariously thumb through mimed copies of all of these books that uh, Ken has bought and get him to supply factoids, fripperies, and perhaps seeds for future segments. So without further ado, uh, the first uh, volume that I uh, am pretending to heft in my hand here is uh, very local to your trip, Portland Confidential, Sex, Crime, and Corruption in the Rose City by Phil Stanford. Yeah, I was looking for a book on murders in Portland to give my lovely wife, uh, Sheila, and I saw one, but I didn't see one at Powell's. It's the only failure of Powell's. Not enough murder for Sheila. Not enough murder for Sheila. I should say for my Chicagoan listeners that the Powell's City of Books in Portland is, of course, an offshoot of the Powell's in Chicago. So uh, when I say Powell's in this, I'm talking about that Powell's, not our Powell's. So don't rush to the Powell's in Chicago. You will be uh, confused. Well, rush to it and buy things there. We, buy we, other things. Yeah. But you're not going to find Portland Confidential because that is one of the sort of local booster type books. Uh, Phil Stanford is a lo- is a Portland. Uh, he's Portlandian, and he has written no man this is book, a Portland. No more. No man is a Portland. Unique unto himself. And this book is about sort of the great Portland racket sting in the 1950s, 1956, in which the former boss of Portland, I believe his name is Bill Elkins, maybe it's Jim Elkins, it's Elkins, Boss Elkins is being shoved out of the Portland Rackets by the Teamsters, which means by the National Mob, probably headed up by Mickey Cohen in L.A., but maybe by the New York guys. And so he then takes evidence of their chicanery and plotting with the district attorney, I think, to the newspaper because he has a relationship with the newspaper reporter, that gets into the papers, and Bobby Kennedy, who is looking to make his own name, drags everyone off to Washington to testify. There's a great hoopla and falderall and fooderoo, and then they go back to Portland, and no one is ever goes to jail. So it's a it's kind of a, a happy ending, if you will. <laughs> happy if you're a criminal. But it's a but it's a snapshot of sort of Portland, which was a white one of the wide open towns, as they call them, where you can do anything as long as you've bribed the cops. 
and you know there's a there's a set um, amount, and this is at the historical moment where the old system of bribing the cops is going away, and the new system is coming in. It's the the sort of move from the his, the localized rackets to the nationalized rackets in a way. It's it's a it's the crime version of the whole 20th century story of the economy, and so it it's got a, sort of a Portland uh, sensibility to it as well, as well as just being a great story full of pictures of exotic dancers and uh, gangsters. So it's it's a fine thing to have for any sort of 50s crime mentality. And if you're setting one of your interwar adventures or post-war adventures in the Rose City, it will give you a great who's who of various local characters, all of them shady or seedy or both. So does that mean that the uh, sort of current uh, reputation of Portland for its sort of uh, hipster-fied strip club scene is sort of a the air of a uh, much rougher, tougher film noir version of that? I, I think that the interesting thing... I mean, you could maybe say that... I don't know if there's a, a direct connection between the burlesque scene here, uh, there, now, and the burlesque scene in Portland in the 50s, but I think that they're, they would want there to be one, and I don't know you know, whether some of the same theaters are being reopened or, or whatnot, but I think that there's definitely a connection that you could draw in, in, in for gaming purposes between the two. So the next item is The Cicero Spy Affair by Richard Wires. Yeah, that is about um, a Albanian who spied for the Nazis on the British embassy in Ankara, Turkey, and his codename was Cicero, and he pretty much found out everything that you would not want a Nazi spy to find out, and as it turns out, the Nazis are incompetent schmucks. So he provides them with the date and place of the air raid on Ploesti, and they're like, oh, don't be ridiculous, no American planes could ever get there. He told them that which they did not want to hear. Yes, he told them that the invasion was coming, uh, Operation Overlord is going into Normandy, and they're like, no, no, the invasion is going into the Mediterranean. And so it, it's thing after thing after thing, he, he keeps copying documents out of the dispatch boxes in Britain, and they keep going up to German intelligence, and nothing is done. And this is the sort of thing that, as you look at it, begins to make you more and more convinced of the theory that Admiral Canaris deliberately was sabotaging the German war effort. The degree to which the Abwehr, you know, pretended to buy the, the cover stories and refused to buy the real stories, it approaches you know, almost mathematical perfection <laughs> as you read enough of these uh, these adventures. And so, you know, I don't know that it's it's a smoking gun proof of Canaris's innocence in sabotaging the Nazi war effort, but as as they used to say of Teddy Kennedy, there's no material difference by now. Right. Um, uh, John Keegan argues that there are almost no historical examples of intelligence finds actually being put to good purpose in a military engagement uh, because there are so many ways that that can go wrong, including, you know, it's, the problem is not getting the information, it's getting the information intact through the chain of bureaucracy up to the people who probably don't want to hear it. Yeah, I think the only case that I could even begin to guess at would be, you know, obviously the Soviets stole the atom bomb, so they got an atom bomb by Right, and that falls outside work. of the carefully yeah. constructed definition uh, it, because yeah. it's not a, a wartime uh, engagement. And um, Midway, of course, was done as a trap based on the fact that we'd broken the Japanese purple code and the Japanese didn't know that we had, but that's not the use of something that spies gathered, that's the use of cryptography, which I don't know if that's his argument one way or the other. Next up, this is a story I'd heard about and found quite vivid, the idea that uh, Roald Dahl uh, was uh, his seduction powers were uh, put into place uh, by the British in Washington in the lead up to uh, 
American involvement in World War II, and here's a whole book to tell you about that. That's The Irregulars, Roald Dahl and the British Spy Ring in Wartime Washington by Janet Conant. Basically, Roald Dahl is one of the guys who works for William Stevenson, Sir William Stevenson, I should say, the great Canadian spy and even greater Canadian self-promoter, so very un-Canadian <laughs> in at least one of those things. I guess sort of the William Shatner of World War II, if you will. And he was the man called Intrepid, which was his secret code name, which we all know because he wrote a book explaining how awesome he was at being a secret agent. Right, and, and he was a Canadian who was awesome at doing things outside of Canada, so he's just the kind of... A Canadian tall poppy we like. Exactly, because you send him overseas to accomplish yes. things. But anyway, he was, um, uh, he was, he was a terrific uh, guy, if what you like is people who manipulate allied governments to drive them into war. We've established that's the Canadian MO. <laughs> that's right. Since he was, we were being driven into the war with the Nazis, I'm inclined to give it a pass this once. But Roald Dahl was part of that effort, and as you hint, one of the things that he was doing for the effort was having sex with various uh, Republican women, and while in bed, saying, you know, the New Deal may be bad, but how about that war on the Nazis? That'd be pretty sweet. And uh, eventually, people like Claire Booth Luce, who uh, was a prominent Republican congresswoman, and even more prominent because she was married to uh, Henry Luce, the publisher of Time magazine. And uh, the writer of the stage play and later many movie versions of uh, the women, about uh, glamorous women being uh, catty and mean to each other. Less less immediately relevant to the war effort, but I'm sure somehow connected. Um, yeah, but he had uh, he bedded her among other people. Uh, he did not bed his hostess in America uh, because she was already bedding Lyndon Johnson, and he figured that that you know was a problem solved. And so there was a uh, it, it was basically his job to sort of oil his way into American society, being a tall, aristocratic-looking, wounded war hero who looked terrific in a uniform, and to socially pressure people to uh, take the British side in World War II. This, of course, is when America is uh, sitting out the war, thinking that perhaps we've had one uh, global war in Europe, and that's one too many. And there's a lot of dispute as to whether or not uh, the British are over overreacting again like they do. And uh, Dahl is there to, to push us into war. And this is a lengthy book on that. It's attempting to, un as best it can, uncover... Uh, some of the mysteries, uh, Janet Conant is working from a cache of letters between Dahl and his American patron and host, Charles Marsh, which she has uh, stumbled on or has gotten a hold of in her historian's way. Uh, one of Dahl's partners in the war is Ian Fleming. Another is a guy named Ogilvy, who winds up founding one of the big Madison Avenue advertising houses. So there's a madman connection, if you're curious about that. I mean, it's it's not so much a story of of Daring Do by the future author of James and the Giant Peach, but it is a story of... It's a bit like uh, the Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah, it's a little more like that. Um, it, it's a it's story of political seduction and regular kind of seduction. So it's it's got a lot going on. It's a good spy story, and I had been meaning to pick it up ever since I read reviews of it and knew about it, and finding it for five bucks at Powell City of Books was kind of the trigger I needed. So there's also on the list is Professors of Perfidy by Alan Hind. Yeah, this is a collection. It was uh, that sort of um, popular collection of interesting things in history that was a big deal in the uh, in the great post-war boom of, of American literacy after everyone's going on the GI Bill and coming back from college and wanting to read more history. And this is a bunch of guys from John Worrell Keeley, the inventor of the water engine, to what they called the uh, painless Parker, the street dentist who... Uh, angered the dental establishment, the guy who made the Cardiff Giant, 
um, all kinds of other great American hoaxes and frauds and troublemakers uh, in, in a handsome book. And again, you know, relatively cheap, and I have a number of other uh, hoax books on the shelf, so this looked like a good, a, a good companion piece to those. Uh, well, I'm working from a pruned list here, and I'm going to prune it even further on the fly and skip down to The American Murders of Jack the Ripper by R. Michael Gordon. Jack the Ripper, of course, there's a considerable mythology surrounding him, and uh, lots of people want to sequelize his story by having him go elsewhere and kill more people. Uh, what does this particular volume have going for it? This particular volume takes as its departure the fact that George Chapman, or Severin Klosowski, who was uh, one of Melville McNaughton's, I think, prime suspects in the Ripper case, or maybe it was Abbeville, I forget who it was, Aberline. Um, but he was, he was considered, he was in the, on the short list, what also lived in New York when other women were murdered in New York in ways that might or might not be like the Ripper. One of them involved a gun, which I would think automatically disqualifies you as being He's a Ripper murderer. not called Jack the Shooter. It's not called Jack the Shooter. This is not the Zodiac Killer. People get it right. But um, it turns out that in um, uh, New York and New Jersey, so in a combined population of 25 million people probably, there were two killings that were like the Ripper and a guy had lived both there and in a city of 8 million. So obviously that's airtight case. That's an airtight closed case. But it is another uh, book of Ripperology and therefore goes on my Ripper shelf. And again, at Powell's uh, for not a lot of money. Next, I'm going to highlight British Dragons by Jacqueline Simpson. This could be about any number of things. Is this literally about dragons? This is literally about British dragons. Uh, she just, uh, this is a book that I think she worked with the Folklore Society, or maybe she was a member of the Folklore Society. She just went and got the, you know, as close as she could to the Ur legend or the Ur myth of a whole bunch of British dragons. So there's the the Lampton Worm, the Dragon of Wantley, the Mucklemester Stoor Worm, all these various uh, dragon stories that she then, you know, sort of like lays out and then has a brief, this is what we know about dragons type uh, intro. And that's it. It is basically just core British dragonology. I'm not sure that in the great world that is the internet, it is super you know, irreplaceable, but it's, uh, it's a nice, um, uh, nice addition and handy to have and a lot uh, more convenient necessarily if you're looking for a bunch of dragons, uh, fully laid out as opposed to having to do the research and going in and out and in and out and in and out the whole time on Wikipedia. Next up, we have Tutankhamun, the Exodus Conspiracy by Andrew Collins and Chris Ogilvie Herald. Now I should say at the outset that I like Andrew Collins's, uh, stuff. Uh, he used to write stories about how he, would psychically hunt the land for Excalibur, and he was led by visions and dreams and all kind. Of, he had sort of a thrilling, you know, adventures in which he and you, the reader, would get to get together and find dead Templars. And then he sort of drifted into sort of the Graham Hancock rearranging other people's research type books. But more recently, his books have uh, have had the theory that we're going to pack as much crazy nonsense into one book as we possibly can. And Tutankhamun Exodus Conspiracy definitely has that. It is... And, and that's a plus for your purposes, right? Oh, yes. This theorizes, A, that Tutankhamun's tomb was secretly plundered by Carter and Carnarvon, even as in opposed to the other plunder that we know about. And among the plunder was secret papyri that revealed the secret of the Exodus, which is that the Jews are actually aliens or Egyptians or, mag or magic users. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure what point he's making. But that Mount Sinai is in, you know, Jordan. That Petra is the temple... There's all manner of, of, of crazy things. He seems to have 
and, and it, as I say, all conspiracy, it's a thing I always say, conspiracy theory always turns into anti-Semitism. This is not quite anti-Semitic, but it is sort of a, it's full of precursor chemicals for anti-Semitism. So if you are worried about right, that. Because if there's anything that's good for the Jews, it's uh, the idea that they're alien magicians. That'll That'll help. Yes, and that they were never in Israel at all, and that there was a secret conspiracy by the British government to make sure that they still got Palestine and that in, uh, Lord Carnarvon was murdered to keep that conspiracy quiet. And, oh, it just goes on and on and on. This is nine yards of crazy. Nine yards of crazy. And if you remember the previous book, the, the so-called worst book that we found at um, uh, the Aquarius Bookshop, that is the Alistair Crowley committed all those murders just for funsies version of this same conspiracy. So the, the curse of Tutankhamun is either Alistair Crowley being a serial killer or it is a secret British plot to allow Zionism to exist. So, you know, you may pick your poison, but Al Andrew Collins has filled this book to the brim with all manner of fruits and nuts. It's a Cadbury milk bar uh, of delight in, in its way. But, like I say, if you are uh, more than uh, usually sensitive to anti-Semitism, you might want to avoid it, and I certainly bought it used for just that reason. And uh, just briefly, you do have another Andrew Collins uh, title on the list. That's the Cygnus Mystery. Where is that in his continuum of wackadoo? Uh, this is uh, the new exciting wackadoo in which you find out that there was a gamma ray burster in the constellation of Cygnus that awakened mankind. So from biblical errancy in the Tutankhamun conspiracy in which Exodus is a lie, we come to biblical inerrancy in which a magical beam from heaven makes us into people. And the Cygnus mystery is why do people fixate on the constellation of Cygnus? And the reason that they do it because it looks like a giant cross in the sky and draws the eye is, of course, immediately dismissed that it, we fixate on it because it's where magical beams come from. But there's lots and lots and lots of, of uh, swans and drawings and constructions from... <laughs> he, he goes to an, uh, one of those uh, ast astronomical uh, websites and draws what the night sky looked like over Turkey in 9000 BC, and sure enough, you can see Cygnus! Oh my goodness! And that demonstrates what exactly? Well, never you mind. I didn't even know I, I was fixated on Cygnus. Well, you are. You and, you and all of us are fixated on Cygnus, and the mystery is unraveled here for the low, low price of, I think it was 10 bucks. But anyway, it's, it's another great Andrew Collins because it's over-explaining and under-explaining simultaneously. It's, it's, a, it's a return, a triumphant return to form by, by my man, Andrew. And next up, we have Ritual America, Secret Brotherhoods and Their Influence on American Society, a visual guide by Craig Heim Bickner and Adam Parfrey. Yes, uh, Adam Parfrey is the publisher of Feral House, and Feral House is a terrific, terrific publishing company. It uh, sort of specializes in the fringe and the strange and the unusual. Adam Parfrey did a great book called It's a Man's World, which is a collection of covers from men's adventure magazines, every one of which, as far as I'm concerned, is a role-playing game cover just waiting to happen. There's a lot of being attacked by animals in those. And, there uh, are a lot of animal attacks. My favorite There's, is the giant otter attack. <laughs> you know, if you see a giant otter, it's a lot scarier than it sounds. It is. They're, they're mean mofos. Well, I, I, anyway, this is not the otter hut. That's a different hut. But this <laughs> is a book of pictures, mostly from the American Ritual Lodge movement. And they point out that it one point before the war, that one of every three Americans belonged to some sort of secret society, a Masonic Lodge, a fraternal brotherhood, 
um, you know, a, a women's auxiliary, uh, something that had some sort of bananas ritual. This goes and takes pictures of all those bananas rituals and all the bananas pictures produced by those secret societies and then investigates them for conspiratorial meaning. And the degree to which Adam Parfrey is ha pulling everyone's leg and publishing an art book and the degree to which he is serious is one of the great things about Adam Parfrey that you never know. I mean, I've met the guy and I can't tell whether he is canny or cunning or, or a chump. And it, it's, I mean, he's a terrific publisher, regardless of his of his belief structures. But I think that he just thinks it's fun to put out a book of innocent pictures of dentists dressing dressing up like ancient Egyptians over text describing how this connects America to a secret uh, lineage of Illuminati oppression. And there's there's a lot of that in it, and it is really really great. And uh, to find a feral house book used is to buy a feral house book, as far as I'm concerned. And next up, a familiar Fortean author, Joe Nickell, with The Science of Ghosts. And we have uh, talked about ghosts. Uh, ghosts are uh, terrific. I love ghost hunting and ghostology. I have been a fan of that ever since, even before Ghostbusters. Joe Nickell is a great skeptic, and therefore for Joe, uh, Joe Nickell to write a big, thick book on ghost hunting is a beautiful dream come true. And I don't know what The Science of Ghosts is, uh, there's a terrific theory that I read somewhere that if you take out every house that is more than a mile or more than a mile from water, you have no haunted houses left. And so the notion that haunted houses are all water table subsidence is kind of an interesting one. I'm sure Joe Nickel will get to that, but he will go even further in things like magnetic fields that make you see color, which is a real thing, and how the uh, human mind and eye responds to cold as opposed to how it responds to warmth. People don't necessarily know that you start having uh, confabulation is much more common at, at cold temperatures than warm temperatures. So there's lots of stuff in there. I'm sure Joe Nickel will go through all of it, and it will be a delight to read. Well, if there's a chapter on uh, crate men, we'll know what happened. We'll know what happened, exactly. Uh, next up, This Haunted Isle, The Ghosts and Legends of Britain's Historic Buildings by Peter Underwood. And Peter Underwood is the dean of British ghost hunters. He is a great uh, ghost Hunter. I have as many Peter Underwood books as I possibly can. This one is about specific structures as opposed to going through, you know, every single haunting in Cornwall. This picks, you know, famous buildings that are haunted and it has pictures and maps and sometimes floor plans. And so it's a, you know, basically it's a Trail of Cthulhu supplement waiting to happen. You take this book, you open it up, here's the haunting, you figure out why it's actually near Othotep or Yogg-Sothoth or a or a, a mythos wizard, and you go nuts. It's just a terrific book. Uh, Peter Underwood's a terrific author. I suspect I have parts of that book in other Peter Underwood books, but I'm happy to buy bits of it to get the whole. And uh, last up is one that you flagged as uh, the seed for a, a future history slash elliptony hut, and that's The Lords of Avaris by David Roll. And this, uh, David Roll has been writing a trilogy called The Test of Time for some time, and the trilogy is based on the theory that Egyptian chronology is hopelessly screwed up and that the if you you know wiggle the chronology just so you can get back to good old book of exodus bible talk and archaeology no longer contradicts the bible it reinforces the bible and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know why anyone would be motivated to wiggle chronology for that uh, conclusion, Ken. Well, David Roll claims, and I don't see any reason to doubt him, that he is uh, not a particularly religious person, and that he was just sort of 
you know, treating the Bible as a historical source book makes more sense than not, and that if you can make all the historical sources line up, that makes it nicer looking. He began as a Vilikovskian, which is the real reason to doubt him, not whether or not he began as a Baptist. Uh, he's a British guy, but he's also a trained archaeologist. I mean, he's a real e Egyptologist. He's done digs. He's like a, a, a real person. And so his Vilikovskian uh, connection is sort of, you know, he, he's trying to combine that background of um, shall we say adventurous thinking with straightforward archaeology. The Lords of Avaris is the one where he goes back and he's talking about the Sea Peoples, and by redating them, what do we find out about such exciting things as the legend of Io and Minos and the Labyrinth and the Trojan War and all manner of other great Indo-European myths as opposed to Bible stuff. And he has a whole you know giant book called Pharaohs and Kings, which is sort of the Bible half of this. This is the Greek and Roman mythology half of this, the Lords of Avaris, and so I picked that up because I am a big fan of uh, monkeying around with chronology, and also because I like his style. I like my crazy to come with a hefty serving of actual history because it's it's more fun that way. Well, that takes us through a uh, a partial list of the trove of treasure looted from Powell's in Portland, and therefore to the end of this episode. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. The World of Ataltis. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Chip in on one of those rolling ladder thingies for Ken's library by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin talk about stuff .com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, podcast, or secret map by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.